Hello and welcome to Stump Death in Taxes. This is Meep, also known by the more boring name of Mary Pat Campbell. I'm a life actuary with an interest in public finance, as well as my area of mortality trends. And for this President's Day 2024, I'm looking at the financial state of the cities that comes from truth in accounting. So let me open this up by just reading the executive summary of their Financial State of the Cities Annual Report. So here we go. This is our eighth annual Financial State of the Cities FSOC report, a comprehensive analysis of the fiscal health of the nation's 75 most populous cities based on their latest annual comprehensive financial reports, ACFR, dated 2022. These government financial reports are lengthy, cumbersome, and sometimes misleading documents. TIA, that's Truth in Accounting, believes that taxpayers and citizens deserve easy to understand, truthful, and transparent financial information from their governments. Until that happens, our mission is to provide this service through this Financial State of the Cities report, along with our annual Financial State of the States and the Financial State of the Union reports. At the end of the fiscal year 2022, 53 cities did not have enough money to pay all of their bills. This means that to claim their budgets were balanced, as is required by law in the 75 cities, elected officials have not included the actual costs of the government in their budget calculations and have pushed costs onto future taxpayers. Together, the 75 cities had $307.4 billion worth of assets available to pay bills. Their debt, including unfunded retirement benefit promises, amounted to $595.3 billion. Pension debt totaled $175.9 billion and other post-employment benefits, that's OPEB, mainly retiree health care, totaled $135.2 billion. In 2022, the cities continued to receive and spend federal COVID-19 relief funds, and as the U.S. economy reopened, they took in additional tax revenue. Such economic gains were offset by increases in their pension liabilities, which were caused in large part due to decreases in the market value of pension investments. Over the past few years, investment market values have swung dramatically. In 2022, this volatility negatively impacted most cities' pension investments in their financial condition, which demonstrates the risk to taxpayers when cities offer defined pension benefits to their employees. Okay, so that was their executive summary. And so I have been, you know, ever since their... Financial State of the Cities has been coming out from Truth in Accounting. I have been looking at this for the different cities. And of course, I have been following their Financial State of the States as well, which has been going on longer from uh, Truth in Accounting. And let me explain some of what we're looking at. And I'm going to do this <laughs> by following a couple of specific cities. I will do some snapshots in the show notes. And yeah, this is audio only. I'm not doing this as video because that takes a little longer 
to show. But the worst city, of course, is New York City. And some of that is pensions. And some of that is, of course, debt (laughs) that came from refinancing pensions and other debt in the past. If you remember that uh, Ford to New York City dropped dead, well, that's kind of related to that um, debt that has uh, been hanging over New York City. I think picking a specific example will help explain what kind of this sinkhole city concept is and what this not enough money to balance, uh, you know, to pay the bills, as it were. Because these are balance sheet snapshots, not income statements. And when they talk about balanced budgets, balanced budgets, um, and first of all, (laughs) the budgets are kind of like, this is what we hope will happen, as opposed to what will actually happen in cash flows for the cities during the year. That's the other thing. Balanced budgets are kind of the plan, not what actually happens in the city during the year. Um, that's another aspect of all of these balanced budget, uh, you know, requirements. So the, um, top, five, or I should say bottom five sinkhole cities. We have coming in at number 71 is Portland, remained in the bottom five despite an improvement in the money needed to pay bills. This improvement was mostly because of a change in the calculation of its fire and police disability and retirement plan, which has less than one penny set aside for each dollar of benefits promised. Future Portland taxpayers will most likely have to pay property taxes to pay for pension benefits earned while the employees were working for prior taxpayers. Because it is assumed the city might have to borrow money to pay promised benefits, the plan's actuaries used the bond buyer's general obligation 20 bond municipal bond index to discount future benefits to their current value. So uh, that rate increased from 2.16% to 3.54%, causing the fund's liability to decrease by $795.2 million. So what happened there? And I assume this is the Portland in Oregon, not the one in Maine, um, is that because this entire fund is pay as you go, that all of the money is going to be borrowed essentially, or, you know, paid out of current taxes. And that, that means when they did a, an actuarial present value, they couldn't discount it like they do normal pension funds or, and this is an OPEB, it sounds like, um, well, maybe it's not an OPEB. Maybe it's an actual defined benefit pension plan that's completely unfunded and is pay as you go. So given that it's, quote, 1% funded, they have to discount it not at the expected return on, say, you know, equities. At And a lot of them are using 7% as a discount rate. Uh, they have to do it based on municipal bond rates which tend to be pretty low. Well, with increasing interest rates, they get to increase that discount rate, which when you increase the discount rate, then (laughs) the value of the liability goes down, that net present value goes down of the future cash flows. Um, So that's just a little bit of math for you today. Um, And I'm just going to skip over the next two. So we have Philadelphia comes in at number 72, Honolulu at number 73, 
Then at number 74 is Chicago, uh, attributed much of its financial condition to COVID-19. This is so disingenuous. This is my <laughs> my interjection. Of course, Chicago was in the dumps well before COVID. Um, it had deeply underfunded pension plans and was having to ramp up contributions, kept having to go back cap in hand to the state of Illinois, which can barely keep up with its own state pension plans, of course, and its own bills. I mean, and that's operating bills, not just the pensions, which are also operating costs, but we'll get away from that in a moment. Um, so saying that it's COVID's fault, and that was one of the things that did crack me up uh, when COVID hit in 2020, was that the Illinois politicians went to Congress, and it was not just the you know, congressional de delegation, but also local state and local politicians went to Congress cap in hand asking for billions of dollars, uh, at, for basically the debt they already had pretending that, oh yeah, it's COVID. Mm, no, you already were in a bad place, but they did get kind of their bailout. It just, of course, they did not use the money to really do much, or I should say, yeah, they, they put it in the pensions, but it really didn't help a lot. Um, in any case, uh, let me read from what uh, Truth and Accounting had to say about Chicago. So I just interjected all of that right after that initial, uh, that initial statement. So here we go. It was mentioned, so let me go back to the comment in the report, Chicago attributed much of its financial condition to COVID-19. It was mentioned 27 times in the city's financial report. Remember, this is the one that is uh, fiscal year 2022. So this probably was uh, the year, the fiscal year ending June 30th, 2022. So yeah, COVID was still hot and heavy at the time. While the city received $2.2 billion in grant funds, its pension liability increased by $1.7 billion, with the pension funds investments reporting an unrealized loss of more than 10%. The city had set aside only 22 cents for every dollar of promised pension benefits and no money for promised retiree health care benefits. The municipal employees and officers annuity and benefit funds actuaries emphasized due to the low funded ratio and the timing of employer contributions the plan is at risk of having to liquidate invested assets at inopportune times to pay monthly benefits the plan is still at risk of potential insolvency if an economic recession or investment market downturn were to occur in the near term if the plan becomes insolvent the employer will be required to make contributions on a pay-as-you-go basis, which means the employer would have to pay all benefits as they become due. Okay, so this is what's called an asset death spiral. I've mentioned it many times before, and they had been projecting, and many people had projecting, including me, uh, that if contributions did not ramp up appropriately, that they would 
be in this asset death spiral and run out of assets and be in a pay-as-you-go situation by, you know, in a few years from now. I'm not joking. Um, and they are very strained. And this is M this is the M-E-A-B-F. Uh, that is the main Chicago Municipal uh, Pension Fund. They are still strained. They are still having difficulty making those contributions. They have been making those increased contributions, by the way. However, it's still not fully the contributions they need to make. So that's Chicago. And then finally, New York City. New York City! New York City, dead last, as it has been for several years now. New York City attributed much of its financial condition to COVID-19, which was mentioned 38 times in the city's financial report. Despite receiving $6.5 billion in COVID relief grants and a $1.3 billion increase in tax revenues, the city's money needed to pay bills increased by $6.1 billion. Its unfunded pension liability increased due to unrealized losses of more than 8%, but New York City's financial problems stem mostly from unfunded retiree health care obligations. While the city had 81 cents set aside for every dollar of promised pension benefits, less than 6 cents had been set aside for every dollar of promised retiree health care benefits. Not properly funding its pension and retiree health care promises burdens future taxpayers and puts retirees at risk of not receiving promised benefits. So that was the explanation for, you know, I did Portland and Chicago and New York City, but I didn't tell you the amount. And these amounts are per taxpayer um, that I'm about to say. So for Portland, it's 20000 dollars and $20,100. For Philadelphia, it's $20,400. And this is how much is owed per taxpayer. Honolulu is $24,200. So they're all about the same. Now remember, so we have rankings. This is how much is owed per taxpayer. Yeah, 71, 72, 73. They have to rank in a certain order, but Portland and Philly are about the same. Honolulu is a little bit more, but now we're going to start to see a big difference when we get to Chicago, which is $42,900 per taxpayer. Then New York City is $61,800 per taxpayer. Now, maybe now I'm just telling you these numbers. It's on a per taxpayer basis. How do they figure it out? As I said, I'm going to use New York City as my example. I usually like beating up on Chicago, but you know what? <laughs> I beat up on them enough. Let me beat up on New York City. So to make it easy to look up the cities, they put them in ABC order in the report. Uh, New York City is on page 110. And the way they put this together and the way it works out um, they don't give the number of taxpayers, but you can back into it <laughs> to figure it out. Um, so we have our total assets, $228,190,391,000. So these are actually all rounded thousands of dollars. 
Then uh, you subtract off capital assets and restricted assets to get the number of assets that are available to pay bills, which is $90,600,517,000. Okay, so that's where we have it. Then there's the total bills, and I'll get to the total bill breakout in a second. So the total bills is $268,166,747,000. Okay. Yeah, this is, you know, a bunch. You're going to be drowning in numbers. So I'm actually just going to do everything to, you know, the nearest tenth of a billion, so 100 million. So the assets to pay bills is 90.6 billion. The total bills is 268.2 billion. So we can already see some problems here. And then what we have in our gap is 177.6 billion. So that's the gap between the assets and then the um, total bills. And this is a balance sheet. So what, there is a little switcheroo going on when we talk about balanced budget requirements because budgets are for income statements, not balance sheets. So balance sheets are assets and liabilities, um, debts and you know, promises made and then assets and the assets can be all sorts of things. Uh, financial assets like bonds and that they hold of other entities, stocks, um, other kinds of assets that are out there that could be, you know, that the entity owns. The bills they have, so let's break out the bills. Um, they have bonds, so $150.7 billion in bonds. So this is their total bills. Other liabilities, which was $101.6 billion. Uh, they took off the debt related to capital assets. So now you may be wondering, now wait a second. Debt related to capital assets, like maybe a bond that you issued to fund a bridge. Okay. So what is actually going on here? What's going on here is that pensions and some of the other bonds that they've issued, like pension obligation bonds, are really debt related to operational costs. And this is what people forget. And this is why we're talking about bills. I know this gets kind of abstract, but when you have a bond that's issued over the lifetime of a capital asset, such as a bridge or a road or a building, okay, often it's like a sinking fund bond or something like that. It is debt that has to do with something that you are using a capital asset that's being used over time and you're using this to finance its operations kind of it's building um, to construct that and you try to match the lifetime or the maturity of the bond to the lifetime of this bridge to you know when you might have to replace it you know some depreciation of that capital asset so that's 126.2 billion. The pensions are really employee compensation for the services they actually made. That's an operational cost. You should have paid 
the contribution for the benefit earned in the year that they provided the service. That's where normal cost comes from. All the different actuarial, uh, normal costing and different kinds of things that, you know, all that actuarial magic. That is to figure out the operational cost for the year that they earned that portion of their pension benefit. All of the cities that deliberately underfunded and did not pay that full cost or played games to try to make that normal cost look a lot smaller than it really was, they are basically not paying the full bills. That's what they mean by it. they really weren't doing a balanced budget. They were playing games with their operational costs to make certain costs look a lot smaller than they really were. It will come out eventually in the balance sheet because even if you try to lowball and they are using some of <laughs> the ways for the unfunded liabilities of the pensions that, you know, I don't necessarily agree with. That said, as the benefit flows go out, it still will <laughs> become clear. It, it will cost what it costs and assets will have to be liquidated as mentioned by Chicago. Uh, cash goes down assets get liquidated and the gap starts growing. It will become evident over time. You do have to be patient and it can be slow moving. So we have our bonds. We have our other liabilities. They do remove the debt related to capital assets. Okay. But we haven't even talked about the unfunded pension benefits. That's $45.5 billion and the unfunded retiree healthcare benefits, which are another item even bigger than the unfunded pension benefits. That's $96.6 billion. So when all of that is added together and that includes removing the debt related to capital assets. This is basically like their credit card balance, $268.2 billion, which was in the prior figuring out what the taxpayer share of the burden, which is 61, um, actually 62,000, I'm just rounding it, $62,000 per taxpayer. Now, that is as if each taxpayer were given a credit card balance that needed to be paid off. That doesn't mean it needed to be paid off in one year, but that's the amount in operational, old operational costs that were not covered in the years that they should have been paid and have accrued. And that debt has accrued over the years. Okay, so now the big so what? Because, of course, New York City has been accruing this debt, and definitely Chicago, and it's gone up and down. And it is, let's just be frank, it is difficult to get purchase, as it were, in the media over these issues. It's difficult enough to try to get the politicians to take some of these issues seriously. There was a webinar that was associated with release of this report. I see that Truth in Accounting has posted the recording of this webinar on YouTube, so I will link to that in the show notes. 
And Mark Funkhauser was the guest on this webinar. He, one of the things he did, <laughs> and so he, you know, has done a lot of things with regards to public finance, but at one point he ran for mayor of his city. Okay, so one one of the things one can do, of course, is direct action by becoming a politician oneself and uh, getting into that position or being on a town council or being on a board of trustees and getting some of that responsibility. Yes, I know that can be difficult and some of us might be, you know, a little prickly and unlikely to be uh elected perhaps however when these things run into trouble um it may require people who are not used to being politicians stepping up and stepping in so that is a possibility um especially in very local politics you will find and i i live in a very small town and of course a lot of people who are involved in our local town council are going to be retired people. Um, and we're very happy with our town supervisor who is a retiree from IBM. Yay, Warren. And uh, it's been very helpful, especially with the uh, electric, I mean, the utility company around here. And every winter tells people not to, you know, the electric heaters that, portable electric heaters that you plug in, do not plug them into one of the, you know, uh, extension cords and that kind of thing, because usually they're not rated for that kind of wattage. Um, you can start fires and this, that, and the other. So he's a uh, fund of practical advice, but also he really is involved in the kinds of problems our local community has. And many people do live in relatively small communities um, and not a lot of people get involved in very local politics. People saw that with the school boards, by the way, and that once very interested people, usually um, you will see that uh, like with the school boards is the teachers, teachers unions and other auxiliary people, as it were, are the most involved for obvious reasons. If you are very involved, you can become very involved in your local politics. The cities that Liz Farmer, so I'm going to bring up Liz Farmer because um, I'm about to make a switch to another issue that came up in the webinar and will hopefully make all sorts of reports easier for organizations like Truth and Accounting and uh, other interested or uh, parties to get at this public finance data. But before that, Liz Farmer has been covering these towns like Hopewell, Virginia and Chester, Pennsylvania. These are not large towns and it does not take a lot of people to get involved and to make a change because um, not that many people vote in general in local elections. It really does not necessarily take a lot. It can take just a few votes to make, you know, to win a an election. Just a thought. It's a little late. 
Well, actually, maybe not. Depending on where you are, it may not be too late to enter a local election, though in many places, the local elections are in odd years and not even years. Um, so that's another thing to consider. It depends on your state, your locality, your county, etc. So that's, you know, just a little thought. And yes, I am involved in my local politics, of course. Um, in any case, one of the things that was mentioned in the webinar is the Financial Data Transparency Act that was passed by Congress. And it was just, I, I don't want to say it was an add-on, but it was something that had uh, been going on for a while that a lot of people have wanted where, uh, and it, I, I don't want to call us outsiders, but a lot of us have wanted the state and local governments to have to report their financial data in standard digital formats, essentially, just like private companies have to do, um, because it's a real pain that we are having to download PDFs and basically manually extract data and have been doing it for a while. This is why I like Truth in Accounting and then the Public Plans database, where I have gotten a lot of my data for some of the graphs that I do. Actually, it's usually Public Plans database because I can just download it all to a single spreadsheet and make graphs that I want to do. Um, that we can uh, start doing analysis just like we do analysis of the financials of publicly traded companies, for instance. Uh, Liz Farmer put out a piece, and this is a paid piece, so, and I did check this time, so I cannot give you too much of this. Three issues to watch in a landmark year for government financial data. But it was also mentioned in this webinar that we are looking for um, all sorts of things. So I'm not going to read from Liz's piece. I will link to it. Uh, but she did link to a piece by Funkhauser and Associates. Oh, that name sounds familiar. I wonder who that is. Uh, <laughs> which is intended for the states and local governments about implementing FDTA. And so I'm just going to read a few parts of it. Are there new financial reporting requirements? No, the FDTA does not mandate any new disclosures or other financial reporting requirements for governments. It's solely focused on format requirements. So currently they're just putting out things in PDF in general and posting it on a website. That's what they're doing. But let's see what it is. What does it say about data requirements? The data standards require the data be machine readable so that it can be fully searchable in a format that can be easily and accurately processed by a computer, be made available under open license format, which will reduce barriers for industry, academia, and others to incorporate or reuse the data standards. So who is in charge of the rulemaking? The Department of the Treasury and the Securities and Exchange Commission are responsible for rulemaking. Rules must be completed by the end of 2024. So they actually have a timeline uh, later in here. And I'm just going to say the timeline because that's what's 
going on. So in general, they are expecting the SEC to propose FDTA standards and rules opening notice and comment period by June 2024. And so then there's a deadline of December 23rd, 2024, this year for the release of the final rules. And I've seen a, a variety of proposals out there um, that had nothing to do specifically with FDTA, but about um, just some financial reporting standards to try to have a global standard that makes it easier for everybody in like some XML kind of thing. And this was not specific to uh, public finance reporting, but was intended for everything so that we can have one standard that we could use for everything. Just, you know, data people like to have one standard if we could, but I, I think that's just silly because things can change and we might have new reporting requirements in terms of ratios and all sorts of things that could be, um, reported. So I don't know about that. They are expecting that 2005, uh, um, sorry, 2025 to 2026 governments are to prepare implementation and that January 1st, 2027 is FDTA is going to be in effect for municipal bond financial disclosures going forward. Now, of course, a lot of governments, uh, state and local governments, I shouldn't say state, most of the states do issue municipal bonds, but a lot of local governments don't issue any municipal bonds at all, but they will have financial reports. Um, so this will be interesting to see how this goes. A lot of states do require local governments to report financials to them. People need to remember states have sovereignty. The federal government have so, has sovereignty. This is the federal system. Uh, local governments do not have sovereignty. It's whatever powers the state puts on them through their state constitutions. Uh, so a lot of states can require all sorts of things of the local governments, and it often happens. It differs state to state. So it will be interesting to see what happens. Um, and some, I wouldn't be surprised, some localities might find not much of anything is going to go on uh, for them. Um, they will likely be smaller and not issuing much in the way of bonds. But things will trickle down to them. Most likely a lot of specialized software will be developed for their use that is specifically for the use of municipalities, I am sure, just as there is specialty software that's been developed for the use of, say, life insurers. And I, you know, I've seen very special uh, niche software that's just used by life insurers and their needs in financial reporting because it is a very special accounting. And if you think that's niche accounting, life reinsurance accounting is can be even more esoteric. And I've been involved in that. So um, it will be interesting to see how that shakes out. I'm hopeful That'll make things easier for uh, various databases that I like to use to get updated, but uh, we'll see how that goes. Um, it doesn't mean <laughs> that that information will necessarily be free. A lot of digitally um, available information is sold very expensively, I might add, even though, you know, because it's 
SEC data and it's government data, it's supposed to be freely available. But making it easy to use is actually valuable and extracting valuable insights and analytics is also valuable. And I'm in that business too. So it's, um, you know, you have to think about it that there's a lot of information out there and some of it has been locked up in PDFs for a long time. And organizations like Truth and Accounting have been making, they have a standard approach to do these analytics, but they have to dig through PDFs to get the numbers. And then sometimes, and this is a point that Liz Farmer, and, and not only Liz Farmer, but a lot of people have made, just having these in a digital format is not necessarily going to fix the particular metrics. And it's definitely not going to fix the timing of how fast they get their reports out. Um, because all of this is how they report the numbers. It won't necessarily make it slower, but it definitely won't necessarily make it any faster. Um, most of the time, the numbers that they are relying on are from their own systems, not from other localities. So that is that. Okay, so let me get back out of the weeds. That was my interest, this FDTA data that I might not be seeing for mm, another three years. I'm, I'm patient, as you can tell. I got started on this in my 30s. I'm going to be 50 this year. I can wait another three years not a problem. But the issue is, as always, is does anybody out there care? Can we make anybody care? Because it is slow moving until all of a sudden it's a disaster. And, you know, people like me and Truth and Accounting and Liz Farmer and Mark Funkhauser and all of these people sitting here saying, we told you so, is not terribly helpful, of course. It would be nice if people listened ahead of time. And yes, we do know that, okay, $61 or $62,000 per taxpayer. Yeah, that doesn't mean they all have to pay it right now. But it is an escalating figure, potentially. And it's like a credit card balance. I try to come up with metaphors that actually are as accurate as possible and kind of make it concrete for people. I try to make, and I think this is what truth and accounting is also trying to do, try to make it very concrete, try to be as truthful as possible and use, uh, and this is not even a metaphor. It is like a credit card balance. The debt, this is why they remove debt related to capital projects like, you know, debt for bridges or buildings or anything, you know, school building financing, that kind of thing that's all removed from this. It is for liabilities such as pensions, which are pension debt is the debt of op old operating costs. These are benefits and that includes the healthcare benefits. You are promising them for past services. It's not a capital asset, okay? They're not going to be giving you, this is for something that they did maybe 20 years ago. And you're asking potentially people in the future, actually you are asking people in the future to pay and interest on top of that 
for service done years ago. And look at how much of that has accrued. This is a point in time snapshot. And you're going to be asking for them to pay over time for this. Now you can quibble about how accurate that number is. I think it's a lot bigger than that number but they're actually using the numbers that are in the reported financials. They're not even adjusting it, unlike some other people like Joshua Rao and some, you know, Empire Center and some other people that I've, you know, made some estimates for that they do a recalculation of what the, li the pension liability should be. Well, um, that would provide a much bigger unfunded liability. But even without that recalculation of a much bigger unfunded liability, you still have an accruing number. It used to not be that large. It took many years for that unfunded pension liability and that very unfunded retiree health care promise to accrue. So what's going to happen? When <laughs> the bill comes due, these are snapshots. These are warnings. You can pretend they're not real. And yes, it, it's not exactly, it's not exactly relevant to the balanced budget other than to the extent they are not including the accrued cost. How are they including the amount that they have to pay down on this debt, the amortized cost of the unfunded pension liability. Are they including anything about the cost on retiree health benefits other than the amount that they're paying that year? Are they just recognizing the pay as you go amount? That's cash accounting versus accrual accounting. Yes, this is very accounting nerd but it has real life impact because you're ignoring what's going to happen in the future, which is a big boost in the costs of that retiree healthcare. And those future taxpayers may not be willing to pay that. What are you going to do then? Because it's for services that were done decades ago. Those people cannot strike now because they don't have services to withhold. So think about that. These are people who are vulnerable. You made a promise to them and you did not do anything to set aside money for that promise. So that's me being serious, but yeah, what's the news hook? Because it's very slow moving disaster until that disaster finally hits and you can no longer afford the promises that you made over decades and accrued and we're watching the number tick up. So that's been Stump, Death and Taxes. Happy President's Day.